Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In the face of protests and regulatory delay, Shell Oil finally sends its drilling ships into the Arctic seas off Alaska. The crew may encounter polar bears and whales, but not the Greenland sharks that scientists are studying in icy waters much further east. It's an incredibly eerie world to be in because there's no sound. You're in gin clear water. It's like being in a giant martini. And there before me is an eight, nine, or 10 foot Greenland shark. Underwater with Greenland sharks. And in the heat of August, we savor the fruits of summer. There's the uh, radiator Charlie's mortgage lifter. There's the Nebraska wedding tomato. You know, the heirloom tomato is the people's tomato. It's of, by, and for the people. Take your pick of those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Shell oil drilling ships are standing by at sea, waiting to sink exploratory wells into Arctic Alaskan waters. The oil giant bought permits to drill in the Beaufort and Chukchi Sea over five years ago. Since then, Shell has faced hurdle after hurdle with regulators, lawsuits, and a federal moratorium on offshore drilling after the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Even with their ships up in the Arctic, Shell is still struggling to get final approval to drill. Alex DeMarvin is a reporter for the Alaska Dispatch. He says Shell has already reduced the number of wells they plan to drill this year. Yeah, they cut down on the number because of problems with sea ice. Uh, it's lingering longer than usual. It's still, at this point, blocking uh, access to their Beaufort Sea site, so they have not even begun to send up ships yet to the Beaufort Sea. And they're still having uh, regulatory issues as well. The two key ones are that they don't have approval for a containment barge, which is instrumental in the event of an oil spill, to capture oil and, and clean it. They need to have that before they can get their permits. And then they also don't have approval yet uh, from Interior Secretary Ken Salazar for their well permits. They need approval for each well they plan to drill. So there have been a lot of objections from environmental and Alaska Native groups over oil uh, exploration in the Beaufort and the Chukchi. Uh, what do they say? Uh, well, they're worried, of course, uh, largely about a spill. Um, they believe that there's not enough resources up there to respond to a, a spill. Uh, we don't even have a deep water port within hundreds of miles of uh, where Shell will be drilling. There's no Coast Guard station. The closest one is 900 miles away. So uh, assistance for Shell in the event of a spill could be a long time coming. So that's the primary concern of environmental groups. And of course, uh, if there's a spill that could damage uh, could kill whales, the bowhead whale, um, as well as other iconic animals such as the polar bear that are already considered to be threatened because of uh, climate change. And that could severely uh, damage the subsistence cultures that exist on Alaska's coast that rely on primarily on the bowhead, but also on beluga whales. And when we say that it could destroy their culture, uh, I don't believe that's an overstatement because uh, their entire year is based around uh, the effort to go whaling in the fall and spring. How much oil exploration has already happened in these Alaskan waters? There's been about 30 wells drilled, and I believe Shell drilled most of them uh, back in the 1980s and 1990s. Apparently they have a pretty good sense that uh, they're sitting on something huge. 
Well, how much oil does Shell expect to get from these sites? Uh, well, from these particular sites, I'm not sure, but the overall Arctic potential is considered to be at least 25 billion barrels of oil. It is a lot, but when you consider the vast U.S. consumption, uh, it would go rather quickly if it provided all of that U.S. consumption. Two years or less is my understanding. So they needed at least one billion barrels of oil to make it economically feasible is uh, one rule of thumb. So the economic hurdles are going to be huge because they've still got to figure out uh, how to get the oil to market. Uh, and given that there's nothing up there, the cost for that is going to be tremendous. What do you mean there's nothing up there? Well, there's no pipeline, for example, offshore. They're going to have to build pipes under the ocean, 70 miles in the case of the Chukchi, to bring it onto shore in Alaska. Uh, and then they've still got many, many miles across Alaska to carry that pipeline to get to our single conduit uh, that runs across the state in order to uh, get the oil to a location from where it can be shipped. Hundreds of miles of pipeline uh, would still have to be built in a very complicated region with numerous threats, including the underwater uh, ice flows that could you know, slash through pipes. So there's great concerns and great costs going well into the future here. Shell Oil is the, the first comer in this particular round of oil exploration in the Beaufort and Chukchi uh, Seas. What does this mean for the future of oil and natural gas exploration in Arctic waters in general? Anyone else looking to start drilling? Yeah, I think uh, some of the companies uh, on deck are ConocoPhillips and Stat Oil. They're watching Shell closely to see uh, what's discovered. If there's a large discovery, uh, that's going to compel them to move more quickly. Uh, they're hoping to begin development in the next couple years at some uh, sites in the Beaufort and Chukchi Sea as well. And uh, certainly if Shell finds something huge, there's expected that there will be a sort of oil rush to the Arctic. Alex DeMarbin, uh, you've been following this story of, of Shell attempting to drill there in the uh, Beaufort and Chukchi Seas there in the Arctic. How likely is it, do you think, that Shell will end up putting in these test wells before things freeze up this year? Um, well, I think there's a very good chance that they're going to get one done in the Chukchi. And they do have an opportunity to request an extension. So uh, that may happen. There's a very good chance that that may happen. It may not be for, for long. The other thing is that they can also do preparatory work for next year uh, by beginning to drill. They can't go down too deep, uh, but they can go down a bit to prepare for next year. And so they can still meet their original goal of drilling up to 10 wells in two years, as long as they can get enough preparatory work in this summer. Alex DeMarban is a reporter for the Alaska Dispatch in Anchorage. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate the time. Coffee drinkers, the Pacific Northwest is holy ground. It's where companies like Seattle's Best Coffee and Starbucks got their start. But researchers recently discovered some surprising information in the land of coffee, caffeine in the ocean, lakes, and rivers, and the likely source is the toilet. Elise Granick is an assistant professor of environmental science at Portland State University in Oregon and is co-author of the new report, Finding Caffeine in Waters of the Pacific Northwest. Professor Granick, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. So how does caffeine get into the water? 
Well, in the temperate zone in the Northwest where we live, there's no known natural sources of caffeine. Uh, so when we see caffeine in rivers or lakes or the ocean, our understanding is that the source is human waste. And that human waste may be from coffee, it may be from energy drinks, from pharmaceuticals, etc. Now, where exactly did you find this caffeine um, in the ocean, in fresh water? Our findings were actually quite surprising. We Our design was set up to look at high pollution threat areas and low pollution threat areas. And our high pollution threat areas were areas of the Oregon coast um, with the highest human population densities where there was a wastewater treatment plant in the vicinity and there was a river flowing into that ocean area. Low pollution threat areas were sites uh, far from population centers uh, with no wastewater treatment plant for at least five miles and no river flowing into the ocean for at least a mile. Um, and surprisingly, our highest levels were at our low pollution threat areas, much to our surprise. Now, why do you suppose that is? So in high population, human population density areas, there's wastewater treatment plants that are treating human waste. Although wastewater treatment plants in the U.S. are reported to only have about a 60 to 70 percent efficiency rate at removing caffeine, that that's probably enough to remove most of the caffeine and, and the remainder is diluted out. Whereas at sites where there's low human population densities, those communities are usually not on a centralized wastewater treatment plant. So instead, each household or business has its own on-site disposal system. And on-site disposal systems have fewer regulations and monitoring requirements. And when we're talking about on-site disposal systems, most of those systems are septic tanks. Now, why are you studying this? I mean, you're not concerned that the fish are having trouble sleeping, are you? No, uh, we actually haven't looked at the effects on fish. Um, we've done some research looking at the effects on intertidal mussels. And the results there? In terms of a general understanding of amounts, it's a very small amount. We found the maximum we found in the ocean was 45 nanograms per liter. Um, and the maximum we found in an adjacent river was just over 150 nanograms per liter. So we're talking about a very small amount. However, in our lab studies on effects of caffeine, uh, 50 nanograms per liter was the lowest dose we looked at in terms of effects on muscles. And that was enough of a dose to cause muscles to generate stress proteins. There have been some reports that caffeine may affect reproduction. When organisms are stressed, they produce stress proteins to protect their cells. And if an organism is under prolonged stress, then that organism may have to shift energy they would normally spend on growth and reproduction on continuously making those stress proteins. So that's one piece of it. The other piece is that caffeine may be a marker or is likely a marker of um, other contaminants that accompany it in wastewater. So when we see caffeine, we expect it to be an indicator of wastewater. And in wastewater, we have not only caffeine, but pharmaceuticals. Uh, we have household cleaners. Um, we have a suite of contaminants which have the potential to impact these marine organisms as well. So how much of a human health risk is all this caffeine in the water? You know, some chemicals bioaccumulate in tissues. We don't expect that caffeine bioaccumulates in tissues. But again, it may be an indicator of other contaminants and chemicals that are able to bioaccumulate in tissues. And so people that are eating intertidal mussels, for example, if there's high levels of caffeine at those sites, we are interested in what other contaminants may be accompanying those 
that caffeine at those sites and whether any of them are contaminants of concern for human health. Now, your research is based in the Pacific Northwest, but I understand that researchers have found caffeine in water all over the country, including my backyard of Boston Harbor. Correct, yes. And so how prevalent is this? At least in the U.S., there are published numbers for um, Kauai in Hawaii, for Miami River and Biscayne Bay in Florida, for uh, Boston Harbor, Sarasota Bay, Florida, Jamaica Bay, New York, and at least one site in Canada. So, Professor Granick, what needs to be done next? I think, first of all, we need to identify the sources. Once we identify the sources of these contaminants, if they are indeed on-site septic systems, our ultimate goal is to provide information that will inform management and policymaking to reduce the level of contaminants that are entering marine systems. Elise Granick is an assistant professor of environmental science at Portland State in Oregon. Thank you so much for taking this time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just ahead, it's a shark's life. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, riding in South Dakota with a hero. But first, this note on emerging science from Annabelle Ford. Imagine a material six times lighter than air and 75 times lighter than styrofoam. It exists. Scientists at Keele University and Hamburg University of Technology have created it and call it aerographite. Aerographite is the newest, lightest material on Earth. It weighs only two milligrams per cubic centimeter, which is four times lighter than the previous record holder. The key to its composition is a web of tiny carbon tubes, but surprisingly, that only makes up 0.01% of the material. The other 99.99% is air. And it turns out that there's a lot of potential for this surprisingly strong material, which is electrically conductive and can withstand both compression and tension. Not only can aerographite be compressed 95%, but it can be pulled back to its original form without any damage. This lightweight champion can also hold up something 40,000 times its own weight. Scientists are thinking about applying these properties to green transport technology, more specifically, vehicle batteries. Because aerographite is both lightweight and electrically conductive, it could be used to create micro-batteries that are much lighter than any battery that currently exists now. This, in turn, would allow electric cars and e-bikes to function more efficiently because of their reduced weight. The researchers see other potential applications for aerographite in water filtration and air purification for incubators. And factories that produce plastic can easily make aerographite in their current facilities since it's simple to create. It seems that there are a lot of ways to make this lightweight material have a heavy impact. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Annabelle Ford. Science research often takes place at the edge, along a frontier. For some researchers, like shark expert Greg Scomel, that edge is the very boundary between their own life and death. Producer Ari Daniel Shapiro reports on Scomel's search for one shark living in an extreme environment. Greg Scomel is a thrill seeker. There's a lot of things that drive human beings to do what they do. But for me, you know, it's 
that anxiety, that edge, that mix of emotions, the clashing of human logic with human heart, like two currents smashing together. Until one wins, it's a roller coaster ride. And there's one kind of creature that does this for Skomal, that gets him on that roller coaster ride again and again. Sharks. Skomal is a biologist with the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries. He's in the water with sharks every chance he gets. Case in point, the Greenland shark, or Somniosis microcephalus. The Greenland shark basically looks like a cigar. Short fins, big nose. Not the most attractive shark I've really ever been in the water with. Due to the fact that this shark lives under six feet of Arctic ice for most of the year, we just don't know a lot about it. So our goal was to get up there in the Canadian Arctic and try to figure out how this animal behaves under the ice. Mm -hmm. And why were you interested in this question kind of in the large picture? We live on a changing earth where ice is breaking up, where global climate change is occurring. And we want to know what the implications are for the ecosystem in the Arctic region. And part of that ecosystem is the Greenland shark. Greenland sharks are apex predators. Nothing eats them, but they eat ringed seals. And Skoma wanted to figure out how the sharks hunt down these seals. Because from his perspective, there are two big obstacles for the sharks. First, it has a parasite that bores into its eyeball that renders it virtually blind. We think the eyeball operates more like a light sensor. So the sharks can't see the seals very well. The second obstacle has to do with the water temperature. It's bitterly cold. The salt allows the water to plunge a few degrees below freezing without turning it to ice. Life in cold water tends to have very low metabolic rates. So these sharks reflect that. They're very sluggish, very slow. Too slow, it seemed, to catch a fast-moving seal. This shark's taking half a minute to move its tail just from one side to the other. You know, you look at a dog, you get something. You look at even a snake, you get something. It looks at you, its tongue moves, something happens. You look at a Greenland shark and all you get is this sense of, I'm a completely lifeless individual that's going to live my life the way I want to live it and I'm not betraying anything to you. But Skomal wanted answers. He wanted to figure out whether these sharks ate only dead seals or if they could hunt live seals. So he set out to spy on the sharks to see if they hung out where the seals were living in the thick ice layer. We used something called passive acoustic telemetry, which basically means you put a pinger on the shark, you let it go, and you set up listening stations around the area to find out what the shark does. That is where it moves underwater. To attach the pingers, he and his team dug holes in the ice, cast baited fishing lines into the water, and brought the sharks to the surface one at a time. Which is when Skomal, wearing his scuba gear and dry suit, would descend down through the hole and into the icy water below. It's an incredibly eerie world to be in because there's no sound. You're in gin-clear water. It's like being in a giant martini. And there before me is an 8, 9, or 10-foot Greenland shark. You can keep them from swimming away because they're so cold in this environment. And believe me, being in that water does slow you down as well. I was comfortable for roughly about 15 minutes. Once your body core cools down, you need to get out of the water. You're working in water that is deep, so if you have buoyancy issues, you sink to the bottom, you're dead. If you can't find your ice hole, you get disoriented, you're dead. So there's always that gnawing at the back of your brain. On numerous dives, Skomal did manage to stay focused and attach pingers to the dorsal fins of six Greenland sharks. And later, when he got the data back, he reconstructed their 3D paths. We thought, well, perhaps it'll spend all its time on the bottom, just snarfing up like a vacuum seals that die. And certainly a couple of the sharks did that. But remarkably, a couple of the sharks ventured close to the ice-bound surface in areas where there were seals. 
Skomal thinks the sharks may use their big noses to follow a seal's scent trail to the surface, and their eyes to discern the bright hole in the ice ceiling where the seal would be living. And finally... These sharks have an amazing mouth. They have an ability to latch onto something, literally suck onto it, and feed on it. Unsuspecting the seal may drown as the shark drags it under. We think that might be the mode that this shark is using. Never observed, but derived indirectly from our technology. This research almost doubled what was known about the Greenland shark, and that pleases Skomal a great deal. But the fieldwork, the diving beneath the ice, also brought him to that edge he so adores, the place where logic and emotion face off. When you reflect back on it, you say, wow, that was incredible. Not only being in probably the most inhospitable environment I've ever been in, but getting to see a species that very few people on Earth have ever seen underwater with a live Greenland shark. That in and of itself just drives me forward to want to keep doing these things. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. Ari's story on Greenland sharks comes to us from the series One Species at a Time. It's produced by Atlantic Public Media with support from the Encyclopedia of Life. Learn more at our website, LOE.org. Every year around this time, we're reminded to stay out of the water. Whoa, shark. Shark. Shark! No, no, Shark Week, sorry. Shark Week. Shark Week! For the past 25 years, the Discovery Channel has paid homage to that most fearsome of apex aquatic predators, the shark. But for centuries, sharks have captured our imagination and our language. Perhaps more than any other animal, we use sharks in common expressions and metaphors. Living on Earth's Ike Sreeskandaraja separates the sayings from the science of sharks. We use animals as metaphors all the time. Lambs are gentle, bees are busy, and sharks, well, sharks mean a lot of things. Obviously, we wouldn't have nearly 25 years of Shark Week if they weren't so just gripping and, and hard to tear your eyes away from. Erin McKean is here to help us understand how we use sharks in language. She's the founder of Wordnik, a large online dictionary, and is a language expert. Lexicographer is the generic term. And to tell us if our sayings have anything to do with the real-life kings of the ocean is a man who lives every week like it's Shark Week. Yes, and I must tell you that I was on the very first one. They sent a group down to our research vessel and uh, did the first Shark Week interview with us. Samuel Gruber, better known as Doc, was on the cutting edge of shark research back then. He now runs the Shark Lab at the University of Miami. We gave a list of shark-inspired phrases to our two experts. First up, shark skin a shiny fabric that mimics the gray sheen reflecting off a shark used to make suits. When they first came out, of course, they were very fancy. And then because they were very fancy, they got knocked off in cheap materials extremely quickly. A shark skin suit became associated with a man who's dressed a little too slick to be trusted. <laughs> a low-rent mobster in a shark skin suit. Unless you're extremely odd, the fabric itself is not real shark skin. The first thing about shark skin is it's an amazing structure. It's an armor plating of tiny little teeth. Dermal denticles. These tiny teeth let sharks swim faster and quieter. Though few people are cloaking themselves in real shark skin, the material has been used all over the world. They used to make gloves out of them. They would use the gloves as sandpaper to make fine furniture, and they also use gloves to, to make billiard balls round. Which brings us to our next phrases. The pool shark, the loan shark, and the card shark. 
The game in question is No Limit Texas Hold'em. The stakes attract rich flounders, and they in turn attract the sharks. Part of it is the feeling of being helpless in the face of a stronger power, right? You know, the loan shark has all the power because they have the money. The card shark has the power because they have skills that you don't have. But while the human sharks exploit power, Doc Gruber says the real sharks use time. We've called them the lords of time because of their ancient evolutionary history and their survival for around half a billion years. So they're playing the game in a way that most things can't because most things aren't that highly evolved. A group of sharks is called a shiver. And if there's blood in the water, that shiver might go into what's known as a feeding frenzy. About 50 sharks were counted in this feeding frenzy. This turbulent behavior, according to Aaron McKean, has become a metaphor. And these metaphors, if they're really successful, they take on lives of their own. Wow, it's like one of those uh, Jacques Cousteau films where the sharks are in a feeding frenzy. Except this time, it's a bunch of bankers. In unrestrained financial competition. There's allegedly a feeding frenzy that could happen on Wall Street. If you look at the so-called feeding frenzy, if you analyze that, you find that there's a lovely ballet and that the sharks are not frenzied at all. They're very careful in where their mouths go so that they don't bite one another. They're very cautious when they do this apparent frenzy. And our final phrase doesn't have anything to do with money or power. Jump the shark, an expression originally derived from a landmark episode of the popular 70s TV show, Happy Days. Lexicographer Aaron McKean. There was this scene in Happy Days where Fonzie water skis and jumps over a shark to prove that he really is the coolest person in the universe. Ready to make the jump! But of course, it was so contrived. So jumping the shark means to do something in a story that is so over the top that everything else after it just seems dumb. Oh, 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 happy days. So the obvious question for shark expert Doc Sam Gruber, in this preposterous storyline, how high would the Fonz have to jump if the shark jumped too? <laughs> I love that. I love that question because I always say to people, all right, this is your chance to ask the shark doc about sharks. For instance, how high can a shark jump? Uh-huh. Uh, some sharks, just they just can't jump. But there are sharks that can jump 25, 30, 35 feet out of the water. That could be a pretty risky stunt if it all lined up. <laughs> it would have to line up in a really weird way. The Fonz made it, but in doing so gave us another phrase that in some way shades sharks as big fish who've run out of good ideas, on top of being power-hungry, out-of-control cheats. You know, we love our monsters. We love to hate our monsters, so they make sharks into monsters for humans that emulate this nasty creature. It's just a, it's just a myth, but it works. Maybe one reason why it works is because maybe we're not so different after all. For Living on Earth, I'm Ike Sreese Kandaraja. Sharks patrol these waters. Sharks patrol these waters. Hey, don't let your fingers dangle in the water. And don't you worry about the day glow orange life preserver. It won't save you. It won't save you. Swim for the shore just as fast as you're able. Swim like a... 
just swim. And now for another trip to the place where you live. Living on Earth's collaboration with Orion Magazine is giving voice to their long-running feature that puts the favorite places of people on the map. I'm Cassie Potter. I am a freshman in college. I'm from Winfred, South Dakota. In this rugged part of the Midwest, farming communities have a special relationship with animals, with the livestock they keep, the wildlife on the prairie, and the horses they ride. Cassie Potter has her own hero. Hero, oh my gosh, I don't even know where to start with him. He was probably my best friend through like high school. I, I first got him when I was in high school and in rodeoing. He was a barrel horse, and in rodeo, barrel racing, it's where there's three barrels set up in an arena, and you race around in a pattern, and whoever has the best time wins, and in South Dakota, we get belt buckles when we win. I rode him every single day in high school, rain or shine, and he just had a huge influence on my life. On a late warm evening, I ride Hero, my high-spirited quarter horse, through one of my family's livestock grazing pastures. Our relationship is strong. As we journey together through the pasture, it's as if we are one in spirit. Gentle breezes whisper in my ears and softly touch my skin, raising the tiny hairs on my arms. Blades of Kentucky bluegrass bristle against us as we stride through them. The grasshopper sparrows squeak and rustle in the air as they snatch field crickets and meadow grasshoppers while crossing the rosy pink sunset. In the distance, a small pond is alive with American coots swimming through the thick cattails. Mallard ducks quack and fly off in silhouettes. Leopard frogs croak loudly alongside the pond. Hero effortlessly crosses a shallow creek that runs peacefully through the pasture where my family and I have found small arrowheads left behind by the Plains Indians crossing the lands years ago. The loud cackles of ringneck pheasant echo across the rolling plains and our black Angus cattle bed down for the night. Hero snorts abruptly as a small cottontail rabbit scurries into the pasture brush. Pesky mosquitoes remind me that it's time to head home. I drop my reins and Hero makes his way back. He knows his way by heart. As the world goes to sleep, I think how grateful I am for the place where I live. Cassie Potter lives in Winfred, South Dakota. She no longer rides Hero, who is now lame, but he continues to hold a strong place in her heart. Tell us about the place where you live. You can find out about our collaboration with Orion Magazine and how to submit your essay by visiting our website, LOE.org. Coming up, the summer delight of heirloom tomatoes. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Breckenridge Capital Advisors, applying a sustainable approach to fixed income investing. www.breckenridge.com The Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. 
This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A seed is a small thing, but it's wrapped up in huge issues, food, politics, history. Janice Ray, author, gardener, and activist, trekked through farms and backyards in search of seeds and the stories connected to them. She's here on the line with us from her farm in southern Georgia to talk about her new book, The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food. Hello there. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Why did you go searching for seeds? I've been a gardener since I was a little girl. My grandmother gave me my first seeds, and I think... Uh, it's just natural for me, being a gardener and a seed saver, to want people to understand what's happening to our seed supply, that our seeds are in jeopardy. We need to all be turning our head to look at seeds. Every morsel of food we put in our mouths is dependent on a seed. Now, in your book, you say that 94% of seed varieties that were available in the United States in the year 1902 are now gone. What happened to all those seeds? What happened was genetic erosion due to a number of things. Fewer of us live in rural areas at all. You know, 80% of us are now urban. Fewer of us farm in 1900, 41%, now less than 2%. But I think the real reason is the industrialization of agriculture, which came about in the so-called Green Revolution, which ushered in chemical fertilizers, standardization, mechanization, I remember when when my grandfather got a tractor, for example, and stopped working with mules. What do you see as the most important reasons to be concerned about this loss in seed diversity? Well, the more biodiverse any system is, the greater its chance for survival. And we see what happened with the potato famine in Ireland. Ninety percent of Irish families grew a potato called the lumper, but it began to suffer from late blight. That led to widespread famine and the diaspora. That would be our major concern. But also, Steve, we're missing out on on these myriad tastes. The beauty of our tables is diminished as we have fewer and fewer varieties to choose from. You and I can go into the grocery store and choose from a Granny Smith or Red Delicious, Yellow Delicious Apple, but 100 years ago, we had 7,000 apple varieties in this country. Now, by the way, the subtitle of your book is A Growing Revolution to Save Food. What is this revolution? This revolution is happening in gardens across the country. I call these gardeners quiet revolutionaries who've been on the margins keeping alive these very interesting uh, heirloom, place-adapted vintage seeds. Let's talk about some of the seed savers that are in your book. Tell me about Will Bonsell in Maine. Will is a very famous seed saver. He's been connected with the Seed Savers Exchange almost since its inception. Will has hundreds and hundreds of varieties that he's curating. A very committed man who has really devoted his life to keeping alive old varieties. He said to me that, You know, it would be a huge loss to humanity if his house happened to burn down. He has deep freezers that serve as seed banks. And he's right. You know, I walked his gardens with him, and there are just all kinds of amazing varieties growing there. In your book, you talk about Randy Gardner. Now, he worked at a publicly funded plant breeding spot in, in North Carolina. Tell me about his operation and what happened to the seeds that he developed. 
Randy works at a public institution near Asheville, North Carolina, and he was a plant breeder there, so a government-hired scientist. What he's doing there is, is developing tomatoes that are specifically adapted to the Mountain South. Over time, Randy was no longer able to support his work very well with government funding, and what happened is that he would develop some new variety, like this little grape tomato that we are now seeing in grocery stores, and he would basically auction it off to seed companies. So basically he would sell them the recipe for the seed. This brings up the question, Steve, of how should we be breeding our crops now? We need to still be breeding seeds to extend seasons, to adapt to lower inputs, you know, to adapt to climate variability as we move deeper into climate change. And do we want to have our government breeders simply be breeding for corporations, or do we want them to be breeding with the future of humanity in mind? Now, who owns seeds? I mean, what and what rights do farmers have to their seeds? Seeds, I believe, should be a part, they're, they're a part of the great commons of human history, like water and like air and like fire. Nobody can own fire. And I understand that we're favoring biotech companies and, you know, we're, we're patenting life itself. But I believe those seeds belong to all of us. In your view, of course, it's important to save the genetic information that's contained in seeds. But you also talk about the culture associated with them. Why do you say that seeds have cultural information wrapped up in them? And, and, and why is it important to save that? Most every heirloom seed or open-pollinated seed I know has a story. We are made of stories. Stories are our culture. Stories help explain who we are, why we're alive right now, what we are meant to be doing. The stories are enough for us to protect every variety of heirloom seed that is available, that is found. Seeds are only a small part of life on Earth. But I think, in this case, they represent everything else. Denise Ray's new book is called The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I very much enjoyed it. When it comes to heirloom plants, perhaps none are as diverse and tasty as tomatoes. Although when we asked Living on Earth's Helen Palmer to check into heirloom tomatoes, as an English woman, she prefers to say... Tomato. Well, anyway, Amy Goldman wrote a gloriously illustrated book about tomatoes, tomatoes, called The Heirloom Tomato. And a few summers ago, we sent Helen off for the fields of Rhinebeck, New York, where Amy Goldman writes and tends her garden. Not only does Amy grow heirloom tomatoes, she's also a seed saver extraordinaire, fulfilling the mission of what we just heard Janice Ray talking about. Tomatoes and I go way back. I started growing them when I was 17 years old, and ever since I've had my hands in the soil. Amy Goldman grows peaches and blueberries, melons and squash. She keeps ducks and chickens, and of course, she grows tomatoes. 
Today she wears a long-sleeved shirt and broad-brimmed straw hat against the brilliant late summer sun as she shows off her crops. We're in the middle of Amy's Folly. This is an acre filled with 500 tomato plants, 250 different sorts, two of each. And unlike the tomato plants most of us buy from the supermarket, those four packs of reliable hybrid varieties like Early Girl or Big Boy or Sweet 100, Goldman grows heirloom tomatoes. The term heirloom, it, it means a tomato of value, capable of reproducing itself true to type from seed that can be handed down to the next generation. My backyard's a thicket of tomato plants. Goldman's heirlooms are arranged in neat rows. The six-foot-tall cages are all clearly labelled, widely spaced, surrounded by straw. The biggest mistake that gardeners make is crowding them. I plant my tomatoes five feet apart in the rows and seven feet between rows. They need, first of all, they need full sun. Uh, they need air circulation, and that reduces the incidence of disease and allows the plants enough room to grow and prosper. Goldman heads down the row to a tomato plant with tentacle-like branches sprawling out over the straw. In this most horrible of tomato years, this plant is going gangbusters. I mean, it's moving across the garden at an alarming rate and, in fact, probably spreading out about 8 to 10 feet in diameter. This tomato's leaves are bright green and it's laden with sprays of tiny currant-like fruits. Alberto shatters. It's a very primitive plant. It shatters. It, it drops its fruit when the fruit is ripe. The tomato quality is, is superb. In fact, uh, it's high in acid, high in sugar, very crunchy, uh, and just wonderful. It's probably, if not the smallest, one of the smallest tomatoes in the world, weighing in at about a gram. I can't even, you know, you can't even weigh it in ounces. It's about a gram and the size of a garden pea. They taste good and they're, so you Well, you try it for yourself. Well, I think I have to, yeah. yeah. See if I can find the ripe one. Well, just give it a shake. These pea-sized tomatoes pack a powerful flavor punch, but that's not their only value for Goldman. Not only are they flavorful and historic uh, and beautiful garden plants, but it's been found that plants' wild relatives contain genes that bred into modern tomatoes can confer disease resistance and other fine traits. That's one of the important lessons Goldman wants her heirloom tomato book to teach. She says the earliest wild tomatoes from South America's coastal highlands were small ones, like these Alberto shatters. The plant was domesticated in Mexico and gradually bred and selected to create all the varieties we know today. Goldman points to a huge plant in the next row, bending with the weight of bunches of egg-shaped tomatoes. Now I've got a tomato right down here called King Humbert or Ray Umberto. It's the forerunner of the San Marzano tomato, which is arguably the most important industrial tomato of the 20th century. Let's go look at it. Yeah. There is Ray Umberto genes in every one of the plum tomatoes we know today. This was named in honor of Umberto I, King of Italy, about 1878. Well, one thing I'm noticing about it as I look at it is 
it seems to be suffering less from the uh, the, the blight and the, the the browning leaves than the others and it's very very heavily cropping there are lots and lots and lots of tomatoes on it this is the value of this variety because it's low input generations of uh, Italian peasant farmers have grown it because it doesn't require staking, it doesn't require watering or any attention whatsoever. Those generations of Italians, like peasant farmers across the globe, recognised the value of this crop, so saved some of the seeds to plant the next year. They passed them on to their children and their grandchildren. That's the paradigm Goldman wants the rest of us to follow. Under many of her plants lie abandoned tomatoes, apparently rotting. I, I couldn't possibly eat all of the varieties that I grow. And I, I joke, I'm running a private CSA for my friends and family. But, you know, I'm a seed saver and ag an advocate for biodiversity. And those very ripe tomatoes are destined for seed saving. That's next year's crop sitting right there. Goldman's a board member of the Seed Savers Exchange, an Iowa-based nonprofit that's gathered over 25,000 varieties of heirloom vegetables in the last 33 years. The mission is to stop the extinction of our food crops. Uh, we have developed a network of people who are dedicated to collecting, conserving, and sharing heirloom seeds and plants while educating the general public about the virtues of genetic and cultural diversity. Goldman wants to spread this knowledge. She says one to two percent of heirloom varieties disappear every year as hybrids take over. And we might need that genetic diversity for our food crops in the future. Her book also traces the history of some 200 luscious tomatoes. It includes taste tests and recipes and celebrates their evocative names. There's the uh, Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter. There's the uh, Nebraska Wedding Tomato. You know, the heirloom tomato is the people's tomato. It's of, by, and for the people. You know, there's a, a tomato called Myona because it's my own. And there's Black Prince, White Beauty, Silvery Fir Tree, Green Doctors, Plum Lemon, Purple Calabash, Sun and Snow. All shapes for all uses, cup-shaped ones perfect for stuffing tiny cherries to pop like candy, mammoth meaty beefsteaks for sandwiches, and all sizes and all colors. This tomato over here oh, this is one. the yellow peach tomato. Oh, it's not shiny like... It's not at all shiny. In fact, it's fuzzy like a peach. Oh, the yellow peach tomato. This is strictly garden to table. This is a, tr a rare treat that you know, this can only be grown by the home gardener. They're so fragile, but so wonderful. And I make a wonderful galette with the peach tomato and white peaches. So that's a kind of, a, a kind of pie? With it's a kind of pie. Which goes to remind us that the chief joy of tomatoes, or tomatoes, however you pronounce them, is to eat them. And though we nibbled our way up and down the rows, it's lunchtime. Goldman starts up the little garden cart she uses round the farm to take us from the tomato field back to the farmhouse. The smell of garlic and basil wafts out through the open kitchen door. Inside, a dozen bronze casts of huge, perfect tomatoes and squash line the kitchen counter. 
a restaurant-sized fridge and freezer hum. And on the table are baskets of multicolored tomatoes. We're making Spanish tomato bread. We toasted the bread with a little brush of olive oil and then uh, scraped some garlic on it. And it, what could be simpler? Put a little bit of tomato on top, maybe some salt, basil, and you've got a, a treat that you'll live for all year. There's nothing in the world like a homegrown tomato. Uh, and heirlooms. At my 35 years of experience as a grower, and plus considerable book learning, have taught me that heirloom tomatoes ripened on the vine in full sun are the most delicious tomatoes of all. And the tomatoes Goldman offered and we ate were indeed delicious. Goldman sent me home with a huge basket of assorted heirlooms, and I saved lots of the seeds for next year. For Living on Earth, I'm Helen Palmer. On the next Living on Earth, a young entrepreneur turns compost into a company, collecting food city folk throw away. Exemplary contents here, you know, for someone's food scraps. It looks like there's some kale here and um, some sort of like gourd or something. I don't even know what that is. Reducing trash and making cash by recycling food waste. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with the sounds of summer. This is the trail of one of the most common crickets, the Carolina ground cricket. It's small, about a third of an inch long, and cold hardy, and you'd find it hard to confuse its song with the two-part trills of this one. The confused ground cricket is found in woodlands in the eastern and midwestern U.S. But it isn't the cricket that's confused. It was the botanist Willis Blatchley who found it in leaf litter and mistook it for the more widespread Carolina cricket. Lang Elliott and Will Hirschberger recorded these trills for their CD, The Songs of Insects. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Kern, Ike Sreese Kandaraja, and Jeff Young, with help from James Kerwood, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Annabelle Ford and Annie Sneed. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.